what we're going to talk about today. So last week, <clears throat> what was it, Tuesday? Yeah, so Tuesday, my daughter comes home from her school. And she tells me chapter 24, and she's, uh, Lisa's going to read chapter 24 for us of some book. And so she says, dad, you know, my teacher today in school, because just what had just happened is Israel had been attacked, you know, as we all know, it's a terrible situation. Um, I almost feel a little, you know, I feel a little bit like jumping on the bandwagon. Because as soon as Israel gets attacked, if you go on social media, there's videos everywhere, it's end times, and everyone's trying to jump on that bandwagon, you know. And, and you know, my view of, of that is different. And so I'll just, I'll tell you that up front. I know you guys, you know, I don't know who's what here. I don't know what you guys believe about the end. I don't know what you guys believe about Israel. Um, <clears throat> So what I may say may go against what you guys believe, but that's why I wanted to have this, this discussion because I think it's super important. And by no means do I feel that people that don't believe in the way that I'm going to say are heretical or not saved or you know, not part of the body of Christ. That's, that's not what I'm trying to get at. But I do believe that it's extremely important. So in light of... Israel being attacked or talking about this, which is sort of like, well, are we really, you know, we don't want to use this as a springboard for, for this type of topic. But at the same time, because it's so prevalent in the church, some of these beliefs, I think it's important that we bring it up. So anyway, my daughter, so she comes home and she says, you know, the, the teacher was talking about, you know, we're in the end times and that we should expect the antichrist at any time. And she mentioned something called the rapture of the church, and she wanted me to ask our parents if we were, she couldn't, she, she didn't know all the verbiage. She goes, are we pre-tribulation rapture? What's that? Christian or public school? This is Christian school. Yeah, I was going to say rapture. Yeah, and, and the class wasn't a theology class. So if it was a theology class, it would have been different. But this is just, you know, and again, her teacher is a lovely, godly woman. She, I know her very well. I know she had no ill intent, and she's caring about the kids. Um, but she's saying, are we pre-tribulation rapture, mid-tribulation rapture, or post-tribulation rapture? You know, and I said, it's sort of like me telling my child, you know, you could be, I'm not trying to control your career. You know, you could be any type of doctor you want to be. <laughs> It doesn't make sense, right? It's like, you're not, you're not asking me if, I'm, if, if, I'm, uh, if I believe in the rapture. You're just saying, what type of rapture do you believe in, right? And I know all of us have come from what they call dispensational backgrounds. I know myself has. I know probably Richie and, and Christian. I know you got a Calvary Chapel shirt on. So I know for sure that you, you, know, you probably have. I know Richie and Lisa have. I'm not sure about you guys. But, um, you know, this was something that really about in 2008 started to become a really hot topic for me because I started, I went to seminary and I started reading about the kingdom of God. Well, even before that, I was reading about the kingdom of God. If you get that documentary that Hubert has right there, that was made in 2009. And at the end of that documentary, you'll see me, okay, I have real short hair and I don't have any gray and I look really young. Um, and uh, I was talking about the kingdom and how important it is to go out and pro- proclaim the gospel because the gospel is, a, is the force of new creation. It's the force of renewal. 
that God has brought to bring forth and push forth the kingdom of God into this world. And so when you look at dispensationalism, does anybody know what dispensationalism is? No idea. Okay, good. Anyone else want to give it a shot? What's the word? Dispensationalism. Well, I think it's like basically the view that God has worked through the Bible in seven dispensations. Yes. Where there's, I guess, different time periods that God has dealt with people. And Hey, come on in. And we're living in the, the church age right now. Right, right. Hey guys, hello. Hi, how are you? Hey, how are you? Hey, Frank. It's up. Good to see you. Welcome back. And so we're talking about dispensationalism. We're, defi- we're defining the word. And I do want to say, now that you guys are sort of funneling in as well, too, um, the caveat that I just spoke about before is that, you know, this is the way of interpreting scriptures that I believe is the most correct way. I don't think it's the perfect way. But it doesn't mean that anyone that doesn't believe this, I think, is heretical or, you know, not saved or anything like that. There are many, you know, strong brothers and sisters in the Lord that are dispensationalists. They just, they, they're wrong. No, just kidding. No, they're just, they're, you know, they, they, they have that view and that's fine. So I just want to say that as you guys come in because we're going to get into some, some controversial issues, right? So what is dispensationalism? You said it's seven dispensations, Okay, and that's true. It's seven different dispensations, but really that is what we call dispensational theology. Okay, so out of dispensational theology with the seven different dispensations, it means that God dealt with mankind seven different ways throughout history. One way in the time of the fall, another way during the, in the time of Noah, another way during the time of the law, another way during the time of David, and so forth and so on. And then what we're living in, as David said now, is the time of grace, which we are. We're living in the time of grace. We're living in what they call the church age. Now, that's all fun. I don't have much disagreement with that. The only thing I would disagree there with dispensationalists is that they believe that God dealt with man salvifically, as it relates to salvation, a different way in each one of those dispensations. Where I would say, which, which is, well, I guess we could call the covenantal view, that God has always dealt with man in the same way. That scripture is one narrative. It's from the beginning to the end. One plan, one people of God. And so the dispensational theology, one of the major um, tenets of it, and this is where dispensationalism stands and falls, is that Israel and the church have two different plans in history by God. God deals with Israel one way, and then he deals with the church in another way. That's that's dispensationalism. Now, has dispensationalism, first of all, how long has it been around? Don't confuse premillennial theology which means that Jesus will return bodily and he will reign on earth for an extended period of time. The scripture says a thousand years, although that is symbolic, 10 times 10 times 10. It means perfect, complete, and an infinite number of time, a perfect amount of time. Uh, That's a traditional, historic view in Christianity. 
premillennialism. Dispensationalism started in the eight, around 1850 by somebody named John Nelson Darby. He's the one that created the whole entire system. Dispensationalism became popular in 19, excuse me, 09 with the Schofield Reference Bible. I actually pulled two of them out of this, this library here, which was great because I wanted to get one anyway because it's filled with the whole entire original dispensational notes. One of the original tenets was this man was saved by obedience to the law in the Old Testament, and now God saves people now by grace through faith, which I don't think any dispensationalist even today believes that. They've changed their views on a, on a few different things. So why, so why is this important? You know, why is dispensationalism such a, uh, a deal breaker for me? Um, a couple of reasons. For one, <clears throat> how could I say it? So the, the, the major, I guess, one of the major things about dispensation, we talked about dispensational theology, right? Out of the theology comes a dispensational eschatology. Does anybody know what eschatology means? End times. times, The study of the end, how the end of the world is going to come about. So there is where I think, although there's many problems with dispensational theology, but those are very easily refutable. But when you get into dispensational eschatology, there's where I think it impacts our effectiveness. It impacts... um, our view, our worldview, and, it, and especially it impacts the extent and power of the gospel to change people, but more than that, to change the actual world, to, to, to renew the world. You see, in the end of the Bible, in Revelation 21 and 22, we see the new heavens and the new earth, which was initiated and inaugurated by Jesus' resurrection. That is a continuous pushing forward from the time that he rose till that time of the end through the promotion, propagation, and preaching of the gospel. As we preach and live the gospel, the kingdom is being, not being built because the Holy Spirit builds for the kingdom. Jesus is the ruler. He's doing it. But we partner with God where he saves us for the world, not from the world. Mm. And so dispensationalism, their eschatology, teaches that God is saving us from the world. He's taking us, he's coming to take us out of the world. So imagine, you know, you know, Hubert, you go to work and I know you, you work at Amazon, right? David, you work for a charter bus company and Christian, you work for the, for a bakery and the warehouse, right? Imagine you were going to work and you knew at any time, at any day that that company was going to fold up and the business was going to be completely closed. You didn't know when it was going to happen. You just know that the president has issued a warning and said, any day, any minute, this company is going to be gone. What would your attitude be like when you went to work? How would you treat the customers? How would you treat your own productivity? How would you treat your own effort? Where would your vision be? Right, but compare that as if it was just the opposite. Instead of the president saying, no, this is going to be closed down at any second, he's saying, this company is growing bigger 
and better and more powerful every day through your job, through what you're doing. You are making a difference in the growth of this company. You are changing lives for the people that come through these doors. And at the end, when this company makes it to the top, you are gonna have your name written on that foundation because you are a part of it. See, that's the difference between dispensational eschatology and what I like to call an optimistic eschatology. Regardless of where you would fit, I'm not trying to promote amillennialism or postmillennialism or any millennialism. What I'm saying is that the end began when Jesus rose from the dead. Amen. And so it's better than saying end times is like beginning times. The beginning times are here. It's not the end. We're just getting started. Now, yeah, Christ can come back at any time. But we don't know the day or the hour. We don't know when he's going to decide to come back. So one of the major tenets of dispensational theology, and this is what I wrote about in the article, was the rapture of the church. There's a few. So basically, dispensational theology, uh, eschatology says this. At any minute, because Israel was made a nation, again, geographically, the geopolitical land of Israel has now been given back to them in 1948. Because of that, at any minute, there's going to be the rapture of the church. Because you see, what happened is, is in AD 70, when Jerusalem was destroyed, the prophetic time clock of Israel was put on pause. And now, from that time, people were waiting for Israel to become a nation again. Why? Well, I believe because of a lot of misinterpreted scriptures in the Old Testament about Israel being regathered, when not only has it already been fulfilled in the book of Ezra, in the book of Nehemiah, which I will go and I'm going to lay this out and then I want you to ask your questions. I could, I'm going to back everything I say up with scripture as best as I can. I guess I don't want to be too bold here because I don't believe we have all the answers. It's not so much I know exactly what's going to happen, but I can tell you pretty much for sure from scripture what's not going to happen. So, so anyway, so this whole entire, this whole entire dispensational theology revolves around a misinterpretation of Matthew 23 and 24, where Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple and the end of the Old Testament order, the destruction of Jerusalem as well. And he says that after he goes through Matthew 24, which is the Olivet Discourse, he then says, this generation will not pass away until all these things happen. Now, one of the things with dispensational eschatology is they like to take thing, th these words such as this generation, the near de demonstrative pronoun of this, and they make it that. They take these things that are near and they say they're not really near, they're far. It's happening soon in the scriptures, but that doesn't mean soon, this means later. And so what they say is that Jesus said it's this generation, not the generation he was there talking to. Now, Jesus says 13 times in the New Testament, he talks about this generation. And every single time he's talking about it, 
He's talking about the actual audience that he's sitting there talking to. He says this generation. But what dispensationalists say is that he's talking about the generation that's going to experience all these things, which is going to happen after Israel becomes a nation again. Because they miss time, and they don't see, which is very plain in Scripture, which I'll show you, that those promises of Israel inheriting the land, of Israel being regathered to their people, of Israel being the nation that they were called to be. You see, the nation of Israel is not replaced by the church. The nation of Israel is fulfilled by the church. As a matter of fact, the word church in the Old Testament is assembly. When you look at the word, if you look at the Hebrew word for assembly, and you look at the, the church, the word ecclesia in the Greek in the New Testament for church, it doesn't mean necessarily church. That's an English word that we came up with. It means assembly. But somehow what dispensationalism does is it takes the church that was in the Old Testament, the assembly, and separates it from that assembly, which is in the New Testament. So they believe that, the, that, that what's going to happen is, is within a generation of Israel being, quote-unquote, reborn in 1948, that God is going to come back, he's going to take his people, the church, out of the world by means of a rapture that can happen anytime, which has no signs preceding it. It's going to be sudden and imminent. It's sudden and it's imminent, right? It can happen any minute. He's going to take them out, and immediately when he takes them out, he's, there's going to start this seven-year tribulation period that they believe that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24, which really, which I'm going to make a case for, is he's talking about pound for pound, word for word, exactly what happened in AD 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed. And during that seven-year period, which coincidentally comes from one tiny little gap in Daniel, 20, in Daniel 9 verses 26 and 27, there's a gap mysteriously put in there which is a 70-year prophecy, if you're familiar with the 70 years of Daniel. It's based off of the 70 years that Jeremiah predicted that Israel would be in exile for 70 years in Babylon. And they were exactly 70 years. But during that exile, Daniel was looking it up and saying, okay, let me pray to the Lord because I know it's going to be 70 years. And he prays this prayer of confession. But then the angel Gabriel comes and tells him that it's not 70 years only. Yes, Israel is going to be returned to that land in 70 years, but their real return to the land is going to be 490 years, 70 times seven. Okay, 490 years, 490 weeks of years is what it says. So what happens is now there's a lot of stuff going on behind that because in the Old Testament, 49 years was the year of what? Does anybody know? Jubilee. jubilee. And so God is showing them that there's going to be a jubilee of jubilees. Right? Remember Jesus when he got into the synagogue and he preached that first time? He says, I come to set the captives free and preach the gospel to the poor and to set the captives free to give them. He was quoting Leviticus 25, which is the jubilee, the jubilee um, verse. He is saying that he is that jubilee in person. He is going to bring complete peace and freedom, not just to the land of Israel, 
but like the Great Commission says, out into all the nations, to the whole entire world. So he is bringing, he is saying that this is going to happen, and this is the prophecy of Daniel, but with dispensationalism, is they'll take a verse in Daniel, which I'll, which I'll just read to you real quick, because I know some of you are not familiar with this, and rightly so, this isn't like your daily, necessarily the daily reading that everybody goes through, and if you have heard about this, it's probably um, just in passing, but he talks about here, and we could talk about what this verse means if, in fact, you want to go with this and talk about this, because there's so many areas that we can go in. But he's talking about 70 weeks, and he says here, Daniel 9, verse 26, he says, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will become with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war, desolations uh, are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Now here's the one week of Daniel that the dispensationalists take and throw into the future. So verse 26, it says, In the end that comes with a flood, even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. And now the dispensationalists put a 2,000 plus year gap between this verse and the next verse. And they say, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. They're trying to say this is the Antichrist. But who makes a firm covenant in the New Testament? Who makes a firm covenant? Jesus. He says, this is the covenant which is in my blood. And right in the middle of his ministry, what does he do? He puts a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And then after that, we see what comes on the wings of abomination, comes the destruction of Jerusalem. And it comes one who makes desolate, even to a complete destruction, one that is decreed and poured out on the one who makes desolate. So what dispensationalists do, their whole entire theology, the dis- I shouldn't say dispensationalists, dispensationalism, their, their whole entire eschatology sits right here on this imaginary gap. Now, what's the problem with this gap? Well, number one, it's 70 weeks of years. So if there's a 2,000-year gap in there, it's no longer 70 weeks of years. It actually invalidates the actual timing of the prophecy. There's no separation here. And we could see that in the perfect jubilee of jubilees that Jesus comes and does. Now, after, the sev- after this quote-unquote tribulation, in the t- during the middle, during the seven-year period, there's going to be a seven-year tribulation according to dispensationalism. A lot of things are going to happen. Number one, an antichrist is going to pop up. Not one verse in the New Testament that mentions this. Now, there's things that allude to it, but when you look at them in context, you'll see they don't have any real foundation. Number two, the temple is going to be rebuilt. What do we hear about in the New Testament about the new temple? Who's the new temple? We are. We are. Who is? Jesus is. We are. We're in him. Right? There's not one verse in the whole entire New Testament that talks about a rebuilt temple. Not one. Not even in the book of Revelation. As a matter of fact, in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 1, John actually measures the existing temple that's there. Which also gives a very good case that Revelation was written before the temple was destroyed. And there is, if you do the research, there is tremendous evidence that points to this, not only secularly, but also in the actual book of Revelation. Yeah. So, yeah. So when you research that and look, and then when you read Revelation with that in mind, 
it really does become a real prophecy that John is really literally prophesying what's going to happen in a very short period of time to the temple in Jerusalem, the destruction and the desolation that the Jews have. It's the great divorce, right? It even talks about the hailstones, the harlot being stoned, okay? Because Israel was committed spiritual adultery against God. They rejected the Messiah. They said, let his blood be upon us. We have no king but Caesar. And Jesus predicted that on these people, on that generation that rejected him, would come all the blood of all the prophets, all the way from the time of old, all the way to the time of the present, and including his very own blood. And so if you go to Matthew, if you go to Matthew 23, the whole chapter of, I don't want to read the whole chapter of Matthew 23, but it's all the woes, right? The woes to the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes. Where are you, Pharisees? He does all this. And then he, he says down, if he, you know, he goes down, go down to verse 31. You testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. Now listen, look at this, look at you. It's always, he's always talking to them. Count how many times the word you is used. You brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you... This, all these things will come upon this generation. Now, dispensationalism has no problem with that being the generation that they're talking to. But during the very same conversation, when Jesus says this generation a few verses down, it's now projected 2,000 plus years into the future to some generation that's going to happen after Israel becomes a nation again. And look at Jesus says in verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. See the picture here, you see when there was a barn fire, a hen would not run out of the barn. The hen would go to their chicks and cover them under the wings. So Jesus is saying, look, you're about to be destroyed. You're about to be torched. I'm the one that wanted to come and protect you and put you under my wings, but you were unwilling. Behold your house. What's the house? The temple is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you'll not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now again, that's a negative prediction. He's not saying that there's, he's not necessarily predicting this. He's saying, you're not going to see me again, almost unless you say this, unless you come to your realization of who he is. And so right after that, chapter 24, Jesus comes out from the temple He's going away when his disciples, they come up to him and they point out all the temple buildings and, say, and, and Jesus says, do you see not all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. And he was sitting on the Mount of Olives and his disciples come privately and they say, you ask him three questions, but really two. What will be the sign of your coming and an, an end of the end of the age? I'm sorry. When will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming, end of the end of the age? So they're very logical questions. 
Okay, and again, it all comes to context. When people think of end of the age, I know I used to think, oh, that's the end of the world. But in the New Testament, the end of the age was the end of the Old Testament order. All the epistles talk about it. Unless they're wrong, unless they're saying the, the Lord, the, you know, the, the day of the Lord is coming, and that we have time is short, and all these other quotations in all of the epistles, mostly, about this day, were they anticipating something that didn't happen? No. The day of the Lord means the judgment of the Lord, which Jesus predicted. And he said to them, first of all, I love the first sentence, see to it that no one misleads you. Jesus gives the warning right there. He says, many are going to come in my name. Now, if you, I'm going to go down through all these things. I'm not going to stop and explain every one. But if you want to know one of these things, well, what does this mean? Well, then you could ask the question. But I'm telling you right here, all these things were fulfilled prior to AD 70 in the lifetime of that generation. So I'm the Christ, right? He says, people are going to say, I'm the Christ, and then we'll mislead many. Verse 6, you'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you're not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. Now, again, Jesus is speaking as one of the prophets. Most of this language, if not all of it, is found in the Old Testament, from the Old Testament prophets. It's called hyperbolic apocalyptic language. It's symbolic, if you want a simple way of saying it. But it has very specific, poignant application. He says, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. In various places, there's going to be famines and earthquakes. All happen. But these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. These are all the things that led up to that war, which started in AD 66. They'll deliver you to tribulation. They'll kill you. We know that we could just think about through the Old New Testament, and we could see these things happen into the apostles. You'll be hated by all nations because of my name, and at that time many will fall away. We've been through the book of Hebrews, right? All about the apostasy and the falling away of Jews that converted to Christ but went back to the Old Testament order. They're going to betray one another, hate one another. False prophets will arise, mislead many. Lawlessness is increased. Most people's love will go, 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 uh, grow cold, and the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. The gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Now, this word world has to be looked at. It's in the Greek, it's oikomene, which means inhabited land. That's the first meaning of it. The second meaning of it is the boundaries of the Roman Empire. That's what it says in the Greek. And so we know that Paul said that the gospel has been preached to every nation under heaven, right? He said that in this epistle. We know that America didn't hear the gospel, you know, Nicaragua didn't probably hear the gospel at that time. He's talking about that known world at the time. And the gospel had went out prior to AD 70. And then he says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken uh, through Daniel the prophet, he says in Luke 21, he says, when you see the armies surrounding Jerusalem, know that the desolation is near. So the desolation is the Roman in, uh, intrusion and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. But the abomination of desolation could be a couple different things. The most um, logical is what actually happened is that when the emperor, the soon-to-be emperor Titus, the general at the time, he invaded Jerusalem, and after he tore down every single thing in the temple, he set up for himself 
a sacrificial system to the gods of the Romans. He put pictures of, uh, of Nero. He put pictures of Caesar up there. They sacrificed a pig. They did all the things that were detestable, mirroring that which had happened during the time of Maccabees. He says, when you see the, the prophet standing, when you see them in the holy place, let the reader understand. See, he's, speaking, he's talking to people that are going to know what's going on. And those who are in the mountains or Judea flee to the mountains. Whoever's on the house must not go down. Get the things and get out. Whoever's in the field must not turn back and get his cloak. Woe to those who are pregnant. And he goes through all these things, right? And then 21, for then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now. Now, this is language that's used about Egypt. Actually, let me see. I, I, I think I put some notes here. I want to read this to you. Tribulation like never before, Ezekiel 5.9. And because of your abominations, I will do among you what I have not done, and the like of which I will never do again. He said that to the people in the captives in Babylon, or the people that were about to get invaded by Babylon. Again, this is hyperbolic, exaggerated, apocalyptic language. Daniel 9.12, when he was praying, thus he has confirmed his words which he had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring on us great calamity for under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like which was done to Jerusalem. So this is not not necessarily literal. Again, if we're going to interpret the Bible literally, we have to do it according to its literature and according to the genre that it's in. And this is a prophetic saying right here. So he says, he talks about the abomination that was talking about. Dan Daniel speaks about this too. All right. And so he goes and he says, there's going to be no, no there's going to be this crazy tribulation. And unless those days were short, you know, they would, nobody would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, they're going to be cut short. And then he keeps going on and on and on. But look what he says. All, if you go down and you keep going, I could keep going through all this, but I, I want to give a chance for questions. If you go down to verse 34, everything that he just says, it's a bookend, right? He says it very simple. He goes, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away. Until all these things take place. Now, here's lesson number one for interpreting Scripture, especially prophecy. When you're, when you're looking at what somebody says, this is prophetic. This is prophesying Israel is going to become a nation again. Or this is prophesying the temple is going to be rebuilt again. In every case, there's always something called a time indicator. This is a time indicator. This generation. I can't go outside with all these things of that generation. Otherwise, I start to turn scripture interpretation into folly. Because if we can make the scripture say anything, it ultimately says nothing. So we have to be bound to what the scripture says. We can't go off and say, oh, well, this, this is really cool if, if this would happen, you know, and maybe he means this generation, he means that generation, maybe generation means race. or the, No. Jesus knew exactly, he couldn't have said it any more plainer. And so we see here the first mistake of dispensationalism is they take this generation and they project that generation into the future. When Jesus was ultimately talking about the people that crucified him, the people that he just condemned, the people that he just blamed for all the blood of the prophets, the people that are going to crucify and spill his own blood, he is saying, this is going to be the result of your action. 
your punishment. And you can go to the first chapter of Book of Revelation, and John even makes it even clearer for us. He says the things that are near, the things that must shortly take place. And he ends the book on the same thing. Think about being in the churches of, of the seven churches of Asia, being an enduring persecution, going through tribulation, going through all these things and getting an encouraging letter from your mentor, your pastor, John the Apostle. But yet, what he's writing isn't to you, it's to the churches 2,000 years in the future. It absolutely invalidates all the whole entire letter for those people that are reading it. That's not how we interpret scripture. And so dispensationalism, what it does and how it does this is it's people are now waiting for this to actually happen on the earth. They're waiting like employees that are waiting for their job to be, to be eradicated because the company is closing up shop only to open up at a future date somewhere, someplace. And guess what we do? We start to take the gospel and we minimize its extent. The gospel comes, just becomes a way to get out of hell. Save yourself from the tribulation. Bible prophecy is one of the biggest forms of evangelism. You better get saved because you're going to be left behind. Left behindism is fiction. It's not reality. That book is obviously fiction. But it's based on and it's predicated on scriptures that just don't, have, don't stand up to the heat. Now, there are a lot of other things that come with this. There's a lot of questions, right? The temple being rebuilt and the people of Israel being regathered and the Antichrist and the millennium and all these other things that we could talk about. But the one thing before we even open that up is this theory of the rapture. we got to talk about that. Because what's going to happen before all these take, things take place in dispensationalism? Jesus is going to come and take us and take us out of here. Now, the rapture is... Anybody know the rapture passage? Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 4, 12 to 18. 1 Thessalonians 4, 12 to 18. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go here and, and read it to you guys. So again, Paul is encouraging Thessalonians who were told something really neat, that the day of the Lord had already come. Now wait a minute. If they were waiting for a rapture and they thought the day of the Lord already came, they either thought they were left behind or they're greatly confused. Because if the day of the Lord already came, people would have disappeared. The day of the Lord is not the rapture. The rapture is not in the scripture. Okay? We have something that dispensationalism has turned into what they call the rapture. So let me read it to you. This is 1 Thessalonians 4. Okay? Uh, this is verse 12. Am I in the right? Yeah. Actually, I think it's... Is it 2 Thessalonians? Look, I don't even know my own Bible here. Yeah, it's 1 Thessalonians here. Why? Yeah, here we go. I got the wrong, uh, the wrong here. So, brother, brethren, we don't want you to be misinformed about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. So he's talking about the Christians that have already died. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him, okay? Because they're waiting for who? What were the apostles told when Jesus ascended? He's going to come back the same way. So they're waiting 
for, for, for Jesus's return, right? They're waiting for this. But when this happens, God's going to bring with them those who have fallen asleep in Christ. And we see this parallel passage in 1 Corinthians 15. We're all going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye, right? The dead in Christ are going to rise. We're going to be changed from corrupt, incorruptible to, or corruptible to incorruptible. The trumpet's going to blast. He says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who fall asleep. Now here's where the tricky passage comes in. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Again, here we have this, this metaphoric, symbolic language that Paul is now using and bringing in to, to exaggerate the point he's trying to make. With the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. We see this in 1 Corinthians 15. Then we who are alive, who are still there, right? If, if, if Christ returns now, there'll be some who are dead, some who are still on earth. What's going to happen to those that are alive? Well, here it says that we're going to be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. So what does this meeting in the air mean? So dispensational theology teaches that this is a literal action that we are going to millions of Christians, billions really, are going to simultaneously go up into the air and somehow gather around one person with the remainder of the, those that have fallen asleep in Christ. Now, that, this, is not, this is not how scripture interpretation works. So what we have to do is we have to look at what does this word meet mean? All right, so this word meet, in Greek culture, the word had a technical meaning this is from a Greek lexicon, by the way. This isn't from somebody that agrees with my theology. To describe the visits of dignitaries to cities where the visitor would be formally met by the citizens or a deputation of them who had gone out from the city for this purpose and then would ceremonially, uh, ceremonially escort that leader back to the city. So the word meet in the Greek is apentesis, it's got six or seven different meanings. And with this coloring, it means the same word when, when, when um, the Christians went out, when Paul was shipwrecked and he went to the land, they went out and met him and brought him back to the village. Well, during the time of the kings and during this, old, this, this time of Christ, and even before that, when a king would come back from victory, okay, the people on the watchtower would see the king coming and the whole entire procession would go out to meet the king. This is something that happened almost all the time. When Caesar and his representation would come into the town, they would go out and meet him and escort him back to take the inspection of the city. This was a very common thing known to the people at the time. So what this means is, is that when Christ returns, we are going to meet him. And why in the air? Because that's how he left. He's going to come back the same way. But even if the rapture, quote unquote, was true, we wouldn't be meeting him in the air and then going off into heaven, which dispensationalism teaches. According to this word in the Greek and the meaning and the context, we would be meeting him and escorting him back to his kingdom. Mm -hmm. And because we don't see rapture or this anywhere else in scripture taken literally or even mentioned figuratively, we don't see it anywhere else. We have to go and compare scripture with scripture. And if we go to the other resurrection verses, it matches very nicely. There's one resurrection. 
Dispensational theology teaches three different returns of Christ. The Bible teaches one. The first return is when he comes and raptures us. The second return is after the tribulation. Then he's going to reign a thousand years. He's going to fight Satan and return again in glory with all the remainder of the saints that didn't die, or that, I'm sorry, that didn't live during the time of that thousand-year reign. You could look it up. I'm not making this stuff up. But in Scripture, we see one return of Christ. We see one. Now, does God come in judgment? Yes, he comes in judgment. Because that's what it says in Matthew 24, right? The Son of Man, you'll see him coming on the clouds. And in all of the Old Testament, when God comes on the clouds, it's always coming in judgment. And we also see in Daniel 7, when he comes on the clouds, it's the, he comes up to the Ancient of Days, coming on, here he is, coming on the clouds, going up to Christ, or going up to God the Father, sitting where? At the right hand. Doing what? Ruling. And when Jesus sat down and ruled, and that whole administration and his timing was set, that's when he executed judgment on those that have killed him. So we see the ascension, and, the, and, and we see Daniel 7 of him sitting next to right goes very nicely with the destruction and the judgment on the Jews at the time. And so God prophetically dealt with Israel in AD 70. And that's done. That's over. There's no significance anymore. And I know this was really difficult to hear and it may, may, may rub you the wrong way, but there is no significance anymore to the geographical land of Israel in God's prophetic time clock. It's now the whole world that is the promised land. What was the promise to Abraham? That in, in you, every nation is going to be blessed. All the families of the earth are going to be blessed. The families of the elect. Who is the real Israel? Romans 9. Not all of Israel, the genealogical Israel, is of Israel. No, no it's the true Israel is the spiritual Israel. Read this. I just wanna, I wanted you guys just to listen to this real quick. This is Ephesians chapter 2. And I just dumped a bunch of scriptures here because I wasn't sure where we would go. But therefore, remember that formerly you, chapter 2, verse 11, the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you at that time were separate from Christ excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of the commandments contained in the ordinances, so that in himself he may make the two into one man, establishing peace, and might, and he keeps going, and might reconcile them in one body to God through the cross, putting to death the enmity. So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself alluding here to the new temple, is the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom also you are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. 
couldn't get more clearer. The two are made one. The promises are fulfilled. What about the promises regarding the land? Joshua 21 to 43 to 45. So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. And there's another one in Nehemiah. So we see here that we don't see in the New Testament any discussion of re-inheriting land. It's completely contrary to what the gospel and what the New Testament says about the new state of Israel and who they are and where they dwell. They're looking for what? A new city whose foundations are, are, are laid by God. It's a spiritual Jerusalem that we're looking towards, not the physical Jerusalem, which would negate and go backwards. Dispensationalism looks at Jesus coming back to sit amid sacrifices, which would be, in my, in my opinion, it would just be blasphemous that Jesus is going to sit on the throne with memorial sacrifices while his hands and his feet were pierced and his side is pierced and he was the great sacrifice. So anyway, I've given you a lot. I don't expect you all to agree with what I'm saying. I know this is something that for me took a long, long time to get my mind around. But I hope that you are, and I still don't have my mind completely around it. It's, it's something that you know is so important to me because I look at what God has given us as a gift. Like he's given us the gospel to go out and proclaim it, but he's also made us part of his restoration project of renewing. He reversed the curse. Every one of us here is saved for a purpose in this world. We're not saved to be taken out of here and let the world that Christ made as good be destroyed. No, it's going to change. It's going to be refined. It's going to be made new, just like our bodies. But everything that God made was good, and Jesus came back to restore what sin and, and, human, and humankind made in the image of God destroyed. And we now, because of Christ, are rectified as that image. We're not Adam again, right? But we are no longer that cracked mirror. We're now that clear mirror where we can reflect God's glory and his image out into the world. But I believe that when we take a dispensational worldview, it sort of negates that whole process. So anyway, I'm going to, I know this is a, a lot, so if you have any questions, I'd be happy to do my best to, to answer. So just feel free to ask questions, Chris. Go ahead. <laughs> Break it up. Break the ice. Do you, you understand dispensationalism better now? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Can you relate it to some of the things you've heard in the Christian circles or prophecy uh, pundits out there? Have you, have you heard a lot about some of the things I'm talking about? Um, you mentioned the temple not, not mentioned in the New Testament being raised back up. Right, rebuilt. Rebuilt. The physical temple. Physical? Yeah. Okay, not the, okay, that yeah. answers my question. Yeah, because the dispensationalists believe that the temple has to be rebuilt. Okay. Um, and they doing that, though. Yeah. There's a movement for it. Well, they do, but the, the, well, first of all, in order for that to happen, the Dome of the Rock would have to be moved. There's so many things that would have to be there, like the red heifer. <laughs> you know, like. You're saying with satellite images 
then yeah. you're trying to make a way, well, we can wedge it in here. Yeah. Not I'm not saying right. they won't do that, but I don't think that has Why anything to do with that? prophecy. Yeah, well, they don't. They're waiting. The the you know the Jewish people are still waiting for their Messiah. They look at Jesus as a failed Messiah because he was killed. The institute has every bit of every element for the new temple. It's very done and ready to go. So they're waiting for building. I I look at it as a counterfeit. So that means when Jesus returns, he's not going to return to Israel, the physical land of Israel. No. No, no, it has no spirit. It has no significance anymore because Israel is so. So the Old Testament Israel. I thought he was returning on. Like, the east gate is boarded up now. What be, gonna, I'm not going to come until I go through this gate. Okay, hold on one second. So, so let me just go and we'll deal with that. So it, the Old Testament Israel, the nation of Israel. Okay, the Old Testament law, circumcision, the sacrifices, the land, the temple, were all types of what was to come. What is that type? What's the anti-type is Christ. It's all fulfilled in Christ. Right? There's a scripture that says all the promises of God are fulfilled in Christ. They're all yes and amen. So all those things, if you want to find the answers, what a dispensational view does is looks for the physical things to be rebuilt, which when you really look back, it negates what Jesus in the New Testament says about the spiritual taking its place. So all those things, the land is now the earth. See, Jesus, a lot of people that love evangelism think the Great Commission is that Jesus is just has this great heart to go out and save people from hell. And he does. But that's not what the Great Commission is about. The Great Commission was a radical, scandalous statement. Radical. Because he's saying it's no longer in Jerusalem where you find Christ, or where you find God. It's no longer at the temple. People are like, what? That's the place that intersects. That's the place that intersects heaven and earth. No, Jesus says, I'm the new intersection. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Go into all the world to every nation now, not just Jerusalem. So there we have the fulfillment of the beginning of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And that's the Old Testament way. Yeah. Right, it's all fulfilled already. Go ahead, Richie. Even the woman at the well, yeah. he said, not in this man, not you were there. Right, it's gonna right, it's not going to be in the Samaria, it's not going to be in Jerusalem. The true worshipers are going to worship God in spirit and in truth. And so when you start to read the New Testament with these new goggles on, you'll start to see, and be like, wait a second, this makes sense. A lot of the scriptures that you usually are, I don't really understand it, or yeah, I guess it is going to happen anytime. You know, because the, everything, all the theological dispensational problems are dumped into the, either the millennial time or they're dumped into the imminent, what can happen any minute, we don't know. And so people just sort of shove it into that category when really the answers are right there in Scripture. When you put it in the context of Jesus returning in judgment, like he did with Babylon, like he did with the Assyrians, like he did on Egypt, he's returning through the enemies of Israel to cast judgment on their adultery. And he did that in AD 70. Yeah, so those, these scriptures about the day of the Lord and about him coming in the tribulation and all that stuff have already been fulfilled. And so the new, the kingdom, officially, a lot of scholars say that after the destruction of Jerusalem is when that officially that new age begun. It was prefigured and it was, it, it was spiritually launched in the resurrection but it was implemented into the world when that destruction of Jerusalem came. In the Old Testament, 
system, sacrifices, everything were completely 100% wiped out and gone. I have two. Yeah, go ahead. And I think, my, I, think I just answered my second one. Hmm. First question is, so Matthew 24, 29, uh, through whatever it says, uh, uh, so are you saying that that is, is that going to be the end? Like that's when his actual return is? Or are you saying that already happened? No, Matthew 24, 29, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, right? Is that what you're looking at? Yeah. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will not fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now this again is apocalyptic language that we find throughout the Old Testament of base, basically earth-shattering things with, with earth-shattering events with extreme theological significance is what we're looking at here. Earth-shattering events, the sun and the moon and the stars. Okay, the stars, the, the seven billion stars or however many billion stars in the, in the, in the, in the atmosphere and the solar system are not going to fall into the earth. If they did, it would, be, it would be comical, right? Even if half of one did, it would destroy the earth. All of them. This is, this is apocalyptic language that that means. When you look at stars, remember we were talking about Joseph, right? What did he say to his father in the dream? The sun and the moon and the stars bow down to me. Right? He's talking and prefiguring the t- Christ, right? Because Joseph's mother wasn't even alive during that time. Joseph's father never bowed down to him. The sun, the moon, and the stars, really, he's talking about all those nations, all right, are going to come under the subjection of Christ. And he's talking about governments, powers, rulers, everything. And that is what happened when Jesus came and he destroyed Jerusalem. He shook things up tremendously. He took, but with, yeah, but, but yeah, it does say they will gather together his elect from the four winds. Right. So is, is that, did you say that happened? Or is yeah, that so that happened? happened. Okay, so let me explain that. It's a great question. So he'll send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds and from one end of the earth to the other. So first of all, the, one of the things we look at here is the word angels, and we think of actual angels. When the, does anyone know what the word angels means? Ministers. Ministers messengers. The, it's the same word for apostles. Okay, It's the same word that's used when people go out and share the gospel. So these, this is, I believe, a picture of what happens after the destruction of Jerusalem. What happens? The gospel now goes out to the four winds, and the four winds comes from the earth being shaped as a cube. Okay, Because everything in, 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 from a biblical perspective, when it talks about God's household, the temple, um, the earth, um, you know, ancient Near East literature looks at this as a cubicle, like the household of God. So the four winds are the four corners, if it was a square. So basically what he's saying is that gospel, the great trumpet, okay, which is, pre- which is, which is symbolic of the gospel being proclaimed, that is going to go, and the, the elect, the people that God has chosen through the hearing of the gospel, are going to be gathered together from all nations. It's almost a, a symbolic, apocalyptic way of the Great Commission being explained there. Does everybody get that? Or at least understand what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Definitely. Okay. Yeah, so, and then I have one other question. And this is something my friend yeah. will always... Yeah, absolutely. Because I was saying... We're going to, to Revelation? Revelation, because she, she always... Like, I was kind of trying to explain this, and she's like, what are you saying? He's, he's ruling with a rod of iron now? And I'm like, but no, but actually, so Where are you that, at? that is the Revelation 19. He himself would rule them with a rod of iron. So that would be, that was my friend. Which verse? 
of 19, verse 15. Uh, now his mouth goes out like a sharp sword, with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. So she, her, for her, she was saying, like, he's not ruling now because, is he ruling with a rod of iron now? I don't think so. Yeah. But I mean, that... Yeah, now this is, again, this is something that is a very difficult book to, 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 to translate and to do it in a soundbite of words, but what, what comes out of his mouth is a sharp sword. What does that put in your mind? What is the sword of the Spirit? The Word of God coming out of his mouth, right? So out of his mouth, we look at that, we see the Word of God, and he's going to strike down the nations. And if we look at Psalm 2, which is a messianic psalm, let's go to that, we can see a picture of this, which is prefiguring Christ coming to rule. Why are the nations in an uproar and the people devise a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together. This is what I believe John is alluding to against the Lord and against his, his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Right? And then it says here that you shall break them, verse 9. We're talking about the nations, talking about those people that are trying to scoff against the Lord. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. So this is not a physical, again, dispensationalism says take everything absolutely literally. So this is not Jesus coming down and just scolding and beating people with a rod of iron. This is symbolic of the strength of his rule and the power of his authority. And then he treads the, 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 wine, the, the wine press of the fierce wrath of God. This is the spilling of the blood that happened in Jerusalem. The, the picture here is the being put into the, I don't want to get too visual here, but being put into the wine press, being grinded and smushed and out of it coming you know, the blood of his enemies. And so this is a picture of Jesus ruling with authority and ruling victoriously. And again, it says it right after, in the robe on which he thighs, he's king of kings and lord of lords. Again, going back to Psalm 2. So that would be my closest you know, you know, get, guess to that. He is in complete, but is he ruling? I mean, he's ruling now, but he's like, I don't know, it doesn't feel like he's ruling. Yeah, well, crazy, it, again, this, the, the rule of Christ Okay, it's just like everything in the scripture. It's upside down. You know, because we get this view in our head that, you know, okay, so the end times, they're either going to be really, really bad, and like, you know, Christ is like the time we're living in now is, is, is really terrible, and it's just going to get worse and worse and worse and worse, and then God's going to come back. The other end of that is, no, Christ is ruling, and he's spiritually ruling right now, and things are just going to get better and better and better. We're not seeing it now, but the things are just going to go up and get better. I don't know if that's what the scripture talks about. What I see in the scripture is that Christ is on the throne. He's ruling. We know that if we're going to believe scripture, we have to believe that. He has disarmed the principalities and powers. He's taken the authority away from Satan. He's bound him. He's not made him completely worthless and useless, but he's taken away that legal. He made that legal transaction where he has bought back the throne that was taken away through the sin He's bought us back. He's redeemed mankind by becoming a man. All right? And so now what he's doing is he is ruling, but it doesn't look the way that we think it's going to look. How, do, how does Jesus, how, how does the church grow? What did, I think it was Martin Luther said or, or somebody quoted, you know, the seed of the church is, 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 is fueled by the blood of the saints. We, we look in the scriptures and what do we see victory out of? 
out of, out of pain, out of death, out of trial, out of tribulation. That, see, God is so in control that he's using... See, everyone thinks that it's Satan against God. Satan is actually the accuser of the brethren. He works for God. Everything he does... I'm not saying God's behind Satan and telling him to do all this evil stuff. I'm not saying I know anything about that. But what I am saying is God uses the intent, again, like with Joseph and his brothers. What they meant for evil... It's not God intended. No, God meant for good. It shows the sovereign will of God working through evil for the salvation and the preservation of life. And that's the picture of what Christ is doing now as he rules. When he does return, he is going to eradicate sin permanently and forever. But right now, we are part of the process. We're part of the battle. And so we are sharing his reign, right? What does it even says in, in Revelation and in Peter? We're, king, we're, king, we're a kingdom of, of rulers and priests, right? A royal priesthood, thank you. And again, this is all alluding to what? We've taken the place of the old priesthood. We've taken the place of the old kingdom. And we are a holy nation. And we are a holy, yeah, that's who we are now. And we are the temple. Amen, there you go. We are, so if you put it all together, it makes this beautiful perfect picture of what's going on. It makes very little room for the escape. What's that? We're seated in heavenly place. Yeah. Can go, right? You go on and on. Everything's upside down. Now, like, with the stuff going on now, everything is strength, you know? I'm obviously got to be stronger and stuff like that. And Christ says to me, he's down here, you know? Yeah. He is strong. So you're right. With the, if you're strong, you victor, you know? Yeah. But that's not what Christ says. Yeah. He says, when we are weak, he's the victor. Yeah. What happens before the resurrection and uh, the last judgment? Well, we don't know. You know, we don't see in Scripture. Like a lot of times, we we look at the some of the Scriptures that are talking about what's hap- what's going to happen at the end of the age, and we mistranslate it for what's going to happen during Christ's second return. But the only real place that we see this, the, the 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 return of Christ is in First Corinthians fifteen. And in First Thessalonians four, and in other places too that I just can't recall. What's that? Well, yeah. So Revelation again, the the end of Revelation talks about the new heavens and the new earth, and the actual Lamb, Jesus Christ, and and the sun is gone. There's no need for a sun. There's no need for a sea. Right. That in essence is the picture of that second full complete picture of the kingdom, that second return of Christ. But that has begun now. That has begun at the resurrection. And that's the final picture of it. But it's also, it's like now and not yet is what they, is, is the way that they look at it. Did you mean to say second return? No, I, that, that, was that what I said, Hubert? You're always catching me. I appreciate it. His, his second, well, why, what I, what I, why I confuse that is because he returned in judgment in AD 70, but not physically. He didn't come back. He just, you, you know, he ruled. He was on the throne rule, but his return, his second, his second coming is what I meant. Yeah. So the, the bowl and that's already Yeah, that's all. If you look, so the cool thing is, is I don't have time to get into this now, but if you go through the book of Revelation, it's a very difficult book to, to translate, but when you go through it, it's literally 60% of it is from the Old Testament. Most of it from Daniel and Ezekiel. And so we see a lot of these things happen, but what blows you away is if you look at the if you look at the secular historian Josephus, who was alive during the time of AD seventy destruction, he literally 
writes historically, he never read Revelation, but his account of the destruction of Jerusalem is like reading a commentary on Revelation about the blood going out and seeping out into two miles long all around and you know the, the, not one stone being left upon the other where the Romans, they destroyed every single rock to get all the gold and the silver out of everything and completely leveled the temple. And he goes in the, in the hailstones where it says in Revelation that uh, the hundred talents of hailstones that the Romans had this very advanced technology where they were catapulting um, hailstones that, like, that weighed 100 talents, exactly. And they were throwing hundreds of them at the Jews, just literally leveling the temple. And it goes on and on and on. And you could, you could borrow it there. We have a few copies of, the, of, of Josephus' Antiquities, and, and, and it's called The War of the Jews. If you read that, you'll be literally blown away. So, Ezekiel 38, that's another good one. So again, Ezekiel 38 and 39, what she's talking about is Gog and Magog, right? And, and, and again, that's a... Another very difficult passage to look at. But again, it's very easy to look at at the same time when you look for the time indicators. So if you look at Ezekiel 38, it says, Son of man, verse, verse 1, set your face toward Gog to the land of Magog, the, chick, the prince of Rosh. Now this here is a weird translation. This is the only place, there's no place in all scripture that talks about a land of Rosh. The word Rosh is used in, throughout scripture, but it means chief. So a, pro, a proper translation would be Gog in the land of Magog, the, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. Now we know that those countries during the time existed. But if you go through this prophecy, the reason, what they believe, that, what, they, what the dispensational view is, is that they're talking about Russia coming from the north. Now, there's two problems with that. Number one, the only, their basis of saying it's Russia is because Rosh sounds like Russia. That's, it, it's, it's comical, but that's what they say. Now, Russia wasn't even exist, wasn't existent at the time. And the root word of Russia is Rus, R-U-S. It's not Rosh. And Rosh just means chief. So it's not talking about Russia. Every invasion of Jerusalem came from the north because that was the bottleneck through the mountains. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, it talks about nations that were actually from the east and the west of Jerusalem coming in from the north, because they had to go to the north and come down. So all the time when Jerusalem was invaded, it was always from the north. But to think that Russia, if you look on the map, it's thousands of miles north. And if you look at this prophecy, these Russians are not gonna ride thousands of miles through a desert on horseback. That's what it talks about. Horses and wooden swords and wooden weapons. There's no hermeneutical theological basis for taking those things and trying to make them machine guns and helicopters and all those other things. But I'm not going to be able to go through the whole thing, but I do want to tell you the time indicator because at the end of this whole prophecy, in verse 30, 23 of 39, it says, and the nations will know that the house of Israel went into exile for their iniquity because they acted treacherously against me. And I hid my face from them, so I gave them into the hand of their adversaries, and all of them fell by the sword. Now, there is a really neat take on this. So in other words, everything he just talked about is happening is because they went into exile. And all this stuff that just happened is so God can show the nations that 
They went in exile because they disobeyed. So we can't project this prophecy into the future. And exactly, it says it again, too, at the end. Then they will know that I am the Lord, verse 28, because I made them go into exile among the nations and then gathered them again to their own land. This happened right after, this is prophesying during the actual exile. And after that, Ezra came and he rebuilt the temple. It says it right in Ezra 6. And the temple was rebuilt. And Nehemiah fortified the walls. And praise God in his prayers for all the promises that God made about the returning to the land and the temple being rebuilt. We're satisfied. And that was back in the other temple before the one that was destroyed. Yeah. Second temple. Yeah, this was the, yeah, this was, the first one was Solomon's temple. That was destroyed. And then the only temple that was built after that was the one in Nehemiah. Herod re, re, redid it and built onto it. He didn't finish that till AD 66, and then it got destroyed four years later. But there is a cool interpretation of this. There, there is a cool take on this that you could look into. What was the book between Ezra and Nehemiah? Does anyone remember? There's a story. doesn't mention Esther. God. Esther, right? Now, Esther, if you look at Esther, Haman, who was the enemy during the time that they were in Persia, right? Because Jews were scattered in Persia. Haman was the enemy. He tried to uh, issue a decree that all the Jews from all the land of Persia, all the known world at that time, would be destroyed and killed. And what happened? God reversed it, right? And what ended up happening? Israel slayed down all of their enemies. I think 70 or 80,000 of them. And God vindicated Israel during that time and saved them, even though God wasn't mentioned in that book. Interestingly enough, in some manuscripts, Haman is called the Gagite. Haman the Gagite. So there's a lot of, there's some commentators that believe that this Ezekiel 38 and 39 is a picture of what happened in the surrounding nations during the time that Israel was to be destroyed because it turns around and Israel destroys their enemies. Now, I'm not saying I totally agree with that because there's a little couple problems with that, but in a nutshell, and overall, it does work. Uh, in, in a sense, it does work. And it also says here in verse 11, on that day, I will give, 38, I will give Gog a burial ground there in Israel, the valley of those who pass by east of the sea, and it will block off those who pass by so that they will bury Gog there with all his horde, and they will call it the valley of Haman Gog. And what, what, where did he come from? Uh, he was an Edomite, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they were always, you know, they were, that's Esau, right? So they were always at war. Yeah. Um, I know we're going over, but I'm fine with it. So if you guys want to keep asking, yeah. Is, um, is there any way that Gog made Gog war is in connection with the Revelation, Revelation Gog? No, I don't think it's connected. It's used as a typification of what happened back in there. So John is, again, Revelation is, is, is he's, he's in a vision here, right? So he's using that example. Is it 20? 20. In Revelation 20, reflecting and calling back what had happened here. But turning it around now or using that as an example for what happens in Revelation 20, which is obviously, you know, the victory there. So that's, that's how I believe that ties in. But again, Gog and Magog, again, I don't know exactly what it is, but I could look at the time indicators in the text and tell you what it's not. So a lot of times we don't know all the answers, but we may know what it's not. And so that should keep us at least contained and studying for the answer. So basically we're just waiting. Yeah, we're no, but we're building for his kingdom. Yeah, it's right. like what you're doing right now in your life matters. 
What you're doing for Christ in your family, in your, with your marriage, with your children, with your job, with your career, with your hobbies, everything you're doing is being used by God towards that building of that kingdom, which he is in charge of sitting at the right hand of God, right? With that rod of iron, with that scepter, he is making sure that this, that this world is being ruled by him. He, we know the victory is there. We read it, right? Death is, where's your sting? Where's your victory? It's going to be, it's gone from the cross, but it has to be implemented. And so the, the rapture theology takes us out of that, I believe, responsibility because God's going to take us out of this persecution and tribulation. No, he's not. He's going to turn it around. He wants us to love through it. He wants us to pr- proclaim the gospel. Yeah. That's okay. No, no, that's fine. I, I, believe me, I, I know this is back as a little step here. But so many times, we're not coming until he enters through the gate again, and that's the east gate that's ported up and stuff, and there's all the stories to make about and stuff. But I looked at it, I love the phone, you can find out anything you want. So then, you know, what scripture is that? I just read it, like it's in Ezekiel, it's in somewhere else. Uh, yeah, well, the what, Ezekiel well, no, is this, right. What's the scripture? Well, the East Gate, Christ will enter into the uh, East Gate. Okay. The Mount of so, and then, but there's another thing, so I, I missed, I forgot what I wrote that on, but was your response to that? Because now it says, that didn't get boarded up to the 1500s, so that gate wasn't even there when Jesus was here, and then they brought up another scenario about Ezekiel talks about a gate that was facing the East, that was around during Jesus' time, but... They boarded up this thing, like the Muslims did it because the Jews said this is where Messiah's going to go back. They boarded up, so they couldn't do it. But that wasn't even around when Jesus was here, so (laughs) it couldn't have been that gate. Yeah. Well, let me just let me just throw throw some color on that. Yeah. Well, Ezekiel forty to forty nine is a picture of the of this heavenly temple, which is tremendous. It's it's um, it's. It's meant to be, which well, what commentators believe it to be, is a picture of what was supposed to be. It says that, you know, tell the sons of Israel to build it and follow this. And I think it even alludes to the fact that, but they won't because they're going to be disobedient. They never built that temple. So what happened to it? Well, if you look at that temple, what commentators think is that's the Old Testament type of the heavenly temple that we read in Revelation 21 and 22. So that's what the Old Testament people, when they hear it, that's how they would relate to it. But now in light of the New Testament, we see what that new temple is going to be like. And if you read Ezekiel 40 to 49, and you read about the the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation, you will see parallels there. So it's almost, I believe it's a fulfillment of that. But that temple was never built. You know, so it's either a temple that's going, and it wasn't supposed to be built. It was a vision that Ezekiel saw. You see, John was literally measuring the temple. He was doing all these things. Ezekiel was watching as these things were being measured. So it was more of a vision of something that was going to happen in the future, whereas John is talking firsthand about what was going on literally there in Revelation 11. He was measuring the temple. It had an outer court. It had sacrifices. It had everything that the regular temple at the time had before it was destroyed. So, yeah. Yeah, no, good. (laughs) Sorry. Um, so, could we be in the time of the, the, after the end of the millennium where Satan is loosed again? Is that, is that possibly our time or no? Um, yeah, see, I don't, I don't think so. I think we are in the time. So I think where we're at right now as it relates to Revelation is that it talks about, again, you know, the new heavens and the new earth. 
bringing in, in, in its absolute fullness in Revelation 21 and 22. But Jesus also talks about, okay, well, we don't, he doesn't talk about, but Jesus rise from the dead. Paul talks about that we are that new creation. He doesn't say we are in the, in, it says in the, in the text that, you know, if anyone is Christ, in Christ, he's a new creation. But that article A is not there. Not it, says it says new creation with an exclamation point. And it implies every single thing about your life is renewed and is new. New perspective, new body, new everything. And he's excited when he says it. Yes, it's emphatic. Yeah. And so when you, look at, when you look at the new heavens and the new earth, it's, there's, no, there, there's continuity from that to that. The, the, the new heavens and the new earth is the fulfillment, ultimately, in its fullness of what we have now as these mini microcosms of the temple of Christ. So it's, it's again, it's, a, it's different than what we've learned, but when you look and you read, it clicks. The puzzle with dispensationalism looks like it fits, but they just don't, and you have to force it in. But when you look at this from this perspective, for the Bible being one simple narrative, it clicks. Yeah. We may not have all the, we don't even know what all the pieces are, but they click. Can I share something? Yeah, Frank, go ahead. Because uh, I really enjoyed this tonight. So this lady has been challenging my faith with some of these thoughts. Okay. <laughs> lately. I don't know where so she's she, getting all this stuff she's from. Been, she's, been, she's been stretching my theology a little. Okay. So I was trained originally in exactly what you were talking about, the dispensations. But there were a lot of things that always bothered me about it. And one of the things was um, when people would say, we would talk about the Great Tribulation. And uh, I have a friend who worked for Voice of the Martyrs. Mm. Uh, He's like a secret agent. He would smuggle Bibles into Muslim countries and China and Vietnam. And the persecution of Christians is tremendous. I mean, really bad. And so I was talking to a minister one day, and I was saying, you know, he was talking about the Great Tribulation, and I said, well, I think we're in it. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, well, Christians are being tortured, killed in front of their families. And he said, well, no, 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 that's not the Great Tribulation, that's just the Tribulation. And I said, brother, I said, if that was your wife and children, and somebody was killing them and torturing them in front of you, that would be a Great Tribulation. So I think I, I agree with you. It's like we, we try to box everything up. Yeah. We try to say, okay, this period of time, this period of time, this period of time. I think we're in it. Well, there were no doubt we suffer tribulation. Um, we, and, we, and we're going to continue to do that. Yeah. I mean, you know, the fiery trial that we're going through, don't think that it's strange. It's right. what all of our brothers are going. I think what we're doing is, though, is we're taking the dispensational view of the Great Tribulation. Is that seven-year period that they believe, Matthew 24... And Revelation 4 to 19 is talking about. But what you're saying is, is that, yes, all of us are going to, if, you know, if you're a believer in Christ, you're going to suffer persecution. Are you, are you familiar with Watchman Nee? Of course. Yeah, yeah. He, he's, he wrote something that when the Western missionaries, before the communists took over China, Western missionaries were coming into China, and they were telling the Christian, the Chinese Christian, don't worry about, if anything bad, before anything bad happens, you, we will be out of here. And then yeah. the communists came in. And they killed 80 million people. Mm-hmm. 80 million innocent people they killed. And he wrote, a lot of my brothers and sisters lost their faith yeah. because they weren't trained to stand. Yeah. 
because they believed in this escape thing. Well, there's been prophecy people, again, the, the generation that was supposed to see all these things, according to dispensationalism, is 40 years a generation. So by 1988, this should have all happened. Yeah. And so in 19, if you look in some of the prophecy pundits, there was 1980 is going to be the rapture, 81, 82, 85. Yep. Even Chuck Smith wrote a book that's not published anymore about <laughs> it's going to happen in 1985. Yep. And, and now what they're trying to say is, well, a generation is 100 years, not 40 years. Yeah. But what's going to happen after 100 years? Right. Right. So a generation in biblical terms is 40 years, and it's already passed. And that's why dispensationalism is weakening the faith of a lot of people because they're seeing it not happen and they're banking their whole entire theology and worldview on this. I yeah. said that the persecution is the church growth. Yeah. 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 Right. Why would they get you out of there before the great persecution? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like right. escapism. And the people who believe in it are, yeah. are well, that's the wrath of God. Yeah. We're not to be under the wrath of God. So we have like the answer for it, but yeah. not according to Scripture, yeah. of course. Yeah. Something that sounds good, but I did a uh, I did a play at Ocean Grove, and after the play, there were a group of women off to the side, and they said, "We oh, really enjoyed it." Again, we were talking, and they we were talking about things that were going on. They had mentioned a certain minister out in California. I think he's a Calvary fellow, and he was teaching on private prophecy. And I said, "Yeah," I said, "There's a lot of crazy things going on. Don't be surprised someday." If, uh, I don't know if you know who Steve Quayle is. No. All right, but he just prophecy teacher but he he's he believes along more what you're mm. just sharing. what's his name steve quayle oh no okay i thought you meant steve Gregg. yeah no, so anyway uh but he also teaches about the giants of genesis section yeah. like this and so i said don't be surprised sometime if you see giants walking down your street and one woman looked at me and she goes oh we don't have to worry about that i'm like why not she goes well we're going to be out of here yeah we're going to be before gone. any of yeah. before any yeah. of this bad stuff happens we're going to be out and i didn't engage her in that because i was like I was tired after the show, to be honest with you, but I didn't feel like getting into it. Yeah. Because the the doctrine is so entrenched. Yeah. Within churches. It's very difficult to to cover it in a soundbite too. You can't just cover it in passing where somebody says it. Oh well, you know. I remember reading some kind of revelation though. Like I felt like I don't remember where it was, but I felt like it was saying I wasn't going to be here through the tribulation. Well, they were. They the 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 church did live through the tribulation. The, yeah, through AD 70, and they were, now, yeah. Now what? Now we're just going to, we're just building the church? We're building for the kingdom. We, you know, we're, we're, we're marking our time. We're abiding in Christ. You know, we're, we're taking Maybe. the opportunities that Christ has. We're not waiting to be raptured. We're waiting for Christ to return. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. What's that? And then, it's, and then bring him into his earthly kingdom. That's what Revelation 21, 22 yeah. is all about. So he said it was finished on the cross. Right, the transaction was gone. He's that defeated sin, death, and evil. Yeah. The curtain tore. Yeah, the curtain of the temple, the holy of holies. Amen. Right. The New Jerusalem is that perfect cube. It it mirrors the holy of holies. That perfect cube. It's saying the dwelling place is now with the Lord. The the actual civilization where we're going to live is going to be with the Lord. Well, listen, I don't want to keep you guys. I've already felt, I'm not cutting you off, but we're going to end here. And if you want, if you have questions, study, ask, and come back next Wednesday. And if you guys have questions and you want to do, talk more about this Wednesday, we can do that.
All right, so let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. I, I thank you, Lord. I pray that uh, you would uh, answer these questions for us through your word. I pray, Lord, that um, you would uh, just... You would give us a sense of the urgency, Lord, of building for your kingdom here, and that we would, we would not look for retreat, but that we would look for opportunities to preach your gospel, to shine a light out into this dark world. And Lord, we do wait for your return, and we can't wait to be with you, Lord, in that paradise, in that new creation. We know that we have the seal, and we just wait for that return. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.